Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Amelia, and today we have a very exciting guest all the way digitally from London. We have Rick on the line. He is a LiDAR technician. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you very much, Amelia. Now, we'll start with a pretty simple question. What is your job? My job is a LiDAR technician. So I'll just explain a bit of what, what that actually entails. So I use a machine, which is called a LiDAR, which stands for Light Tech Detection and Ranging. It's similar to sonar and radar, but uses infrared light waves instead. So the machine is a little box that fires out millions and millions of infrared pulses, and it records the time it takes for the light to leave the LiDAR machine, travel to an an object or wall or floor, back to the LiDAR machine. And the time it takes will determine how far away that object is from the machine. So using using this machine, the machine that maps in 360 degrees from its position, I will then go through a set or an environment doing multiple scans that each capture a 3D image around that setup. I will then put all those setups together to create one full 3D world of what I've scanned, which will be like, it'll be millimeter accurate in X, Y, and Z. So you'll get everything up, down, left, right from from your position and you can then walk through the scene, you can fly through the scene, you can, uh, we will then give this, we will make the model, we will then give it to the big VFX houses and they will then animate it. So they will do set extensions. So they will make the street carry on for another mile or two. They will make the building heights higher or they will explode the windows that you can't do down a London street or they will add some characters, some zombies walking down, down the middle of the street. So they will be able to add everything into that 3D world. My job is to 3D map environments and sets for the film industry for use in CGI and animation. Yeah, for sure. So you can take a real world place that actually does exist and then sort of turn it into a digital asset that then they can create completely imaginary and but presumably realistic looking scenarios within that digital environment. Yeah, so it's either like a real world environment. So say I've done shows when they'll close off a London street and they'll be filming a car chase scene down the street, but they often, you know, we use the same bit of street for, you know, he turns left at one point, they'll turn right at another point. So they need to get, they're kind of going to put this all together later in post to make it as one smooth sequence. So I will then go down down the street and do multiple different positions to try and get every angle of the environment captured. So that then. I, we can present them with a 3D model of the street they filmed in to then chop it apart if they need to or create a smoother sequence, but with all the kind of correct geographic restraints. Why is it easier to have you go out there and scan this real-world environment rather than someone who's really good at making kind of imaginary digital assets? Like, why don't they just make it imaginary from scratch like why is there this desire to have it so accurate and real i mean it's this the scan can be used for multiple different things so i said it can be used 
I just because I use LIDAR for film, it can be used for surveys to make it accurate for building contraction constructions, etc. But one of the reasons is cost as well. That it's for another part of my company, we use photogrammetry to create three D models of the actors. And someone once told me that if without this scan of the actor, it will take a really good digital artist a week to make this character. However, with the scan, it will take them a day. So you're kind of cutting down time time to create stuff is one option. And then the other would be that sometimes you just, you want to have the real world, what was used in the film, because it's a cheaper option than building all from scratch. But you need to add elements into that that can't be there in real life. So an explosion, you can't go and blow up London streets. So it's easy to get a, a very accurate digital model of it that you can do camera tracking with the camera that you filmed on through the digital scene and then you can add explosions you can change the lighting you can add characters you can add more cars it's just a kind of a control space so that things will work correctly through the scene thinking about it now it's kind of mind-blowing that it's faster to get a copy of the real world rather than have someone sit there and create it from scratch i just in my head it had always been easier to have kind of digital art created but it's kind of cool that the real world is actually a more efficient option as well uh, it depends on it depends on budget it depends on what the, the look of the shot will be as well because also every camera that films has some lens distortion on it so that if you're trying to track a camera or add something correct to be correct correctly placed in a scene you need to know the exact measurement between the camera and that object so that the lighting can fall in a particular way or the kind of debris can fall correctly. Like there's a lot of kind of other elements that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think about that kind of go on. So to have a really accurate model helps with a lot of other elements than just the world. If it, um, You can add more things to it, you can change things. But, you know, if you have where this, you, know, you can see the sun going over the buildings, that will change all the shadows, which you don't always get if it's a made up. Like you'd be doing arbitrary if it was just a you know, you made it in a computer as opposed to the real life scan. There's there's so much more science in this kind of world building than I'd ever given it credit for, I think. In some of the big VFX houses, they have specialists who are science and maths and will figure out like fluid dynamics so that when they create waves, they have the exact correct look or like that's how water will behave in a computer animation or that explosion will look correct on the final film so you have all these people behind the scenes who are doing all these great calculations and model building to make sure that something looks correct to the what the human perceptive of of it would be yeah for sure because i imagine if it wasn't correct and if these things were slightly out it would sort of create that jarring moment which would throw you out of this imaginary world that the film's created and if if there isn't that kind of flow if your brain goes oh no that's not how that would work then you'd sort of be like ugh. It's one of those that everyone remembers bad visual effects. Like, everyone has that, oh, that didn't work very well. Everyone remembers the bad things. If, if it's done well, you don't even notice it. And, like, there's been a lot of times when, say, oh, that was really good visual effects. And you actually, no, that was shot in camera with stuntmen. Or, oh, that was shot with stuntmen. And actually, that's visual effects. And it's kind of a, a combination of both of them. But this is slightly outside my area of expertise. I, as I, say, I, I will go and scan the set. We capture what is on set in millimetre accuracy for use down the pipeline. So we're a very small part of the VFX pipeline. 
things are things are quicker in VFX houses like having LiDAR as a you know a base they can build their scene through or track the cameras through. It's just another it's another element that they can use to perfect their end product. So it you know, it keeps me employed as well and it's I find it a little bit more fun than normal surveying. Yeah, because I imagine every job would be different, right? Every job is different. You've got to kind of juggle all the needs of each department to be able to capture the data in the best quality you can while working around all the other moving parts that go onto a film set. You don't. You rarely get the set to yourself to take your time. You normally have to, you know, hurry. Know what you can like. Know you need to know the capabilities of your equipment and the best, most efficient way of getting the best data you can from that. What does an average day at work look like for you? If there is such a thing as an average day, what do you do? Is it kind of a nine to five job or? No, no. The hours are the hours are a little bit crazy. If you're in a studio, the call time might be eight a.m. And you might carry on till 6 p.m. And you don't always know what's going to happen that day. There might be some vehicles that need to be scanned or a set that needs to be scanned or some props or something. So you're kind of, you're waiting to be told. There's always a last minute kind of change. So everything kind of, everything's quite fluid on film sets. So it's, you know, what you had planned might suddenly change the morning you get, the get there. So you have to kind of work around that. And then there's every chance that because of a change, they'll turn to you and say, you need to work after wrap today. So your days can be a normal 10 hours or it can be up to 16 hours, depending on how the film has organised itself and how things have worked throughout that day. Like availability offsets before actors or crowds or the pyrotechnics get put in. Like there's kind of finite times, which may be two hours before call or two hours after wrap, your only times you can do it. So the days are normally... They change quite a lot and there's no kind of average day apart from you turn up ready to go and try or just complete the job as as you can and always be ready to kind of be flexible and change your approach to things or you know, your plan of attack essentially. Got to think a lot on your feet. How big is this equipment that you're working with? In my head it's sort of a bit like a retro camera box that you're putting on a tripod but I don't know if that's like a realistic idea that I've got. It's one of the technologies that's actually changed quite a lot even since I started using it. So I I started, I found out about LiDAR and started kind of playing with it back in like 2009. And that was when you had like a big kind of meter and a half pelly case, like the big kind of box camera in it. That's massive. Yeah, it used to be. So it used to be, um, scanners could be like, say, 20 kilograms. You then had to move between setups and it used to take 45 minutes to scan something. And now they are the size of a, like, small suitcase they weigh two three kilograms and you can do a scan in under a minute the same resolution that used to take 45 minutes technology has sped up so things are getting smaller they're more they're more mobile essentially the cameras are changing anyway because you're getting there's a lot more cameras that can get put onto aircraft or drones i've seen they do lidar through drones which fly above an area capture it the drone can carry it it's up to like eight kilograms technology has helped us making things smaller and quicker you have your camera, which is essentially your terrestrial LiDAR, which is what I use, is a small box. It has a rotating mirror in the center of it, and it rotates around 360 degrees, capturing everything it can see from that position. And that sits on top of a tripod, and then you control it through an iPad now. So that collects all your raw data, and you have to go back to a laptop and kind of process it after that. The equipment is smaller, it's more manageable now. It used to be quite a big 
trek moving anywhere. For sure. And I'm suspecting that, yes, the equipment is small, but I'm assuming that the data sets that you're creating are, if not large, like they're, they're massive. Because you can capture more now, you tend, to do, you tend to capture more, so you still get quite a large amount of data. But the data itself as a raw format isn't as big as you would think. So the way that LiDAR captures is it's a point source. So from the middle of the scanner, the scanner knows where it is and where it sends out the infrared light, what angle, what direction, and what time it was sent out. It will then bounce off an object and be returned back to the scanner. It will record the time it takes to be sent out and come back from that direction. So that point is just stored as an XYZ coordinate. Your raw data is just billions of points with an XYZ coordinate. When you then put it into the software, you exponentially increase the size of it because it's now visually shown as a 3D object or 3D point cloud, which is then a lot heavier and more computing power is needed as soon as you start processing it. It's, it's not unusual to capture you know, 20 gigs of data for a small set, just XYZ coordinates, maybe some pictures in there. Okay, that's actually kind of smaller than what I was envisaging, actually. So it was smaller as raw data than people think, but then it says as soon as you put it into your 3D viewer or your way of combining all your data together, it becomes a very large file. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your job sort of like day to day? I don't think there's much more to add. Like I say, it's, it's quite difficult to kind of explain. You turn up and you need to rush around the film set, run in between setups on the camera takes occasionally, go and scan a car when it's not being used. You kind of just, it's the flexibility of not knowing exactly what's, what you're going to be doing each day. And that's one of the exciting parts of it, that every day is different. There's a, there's a famous kind of quote in the film industry, which is, hurry up and wait. So everything needs to be done really quickly when you're doing something. But there's a lot of time that you're waiting to start something or you're waiting for something to be free. So you always need to be ready to move for like the whole 10, 12 hours, however long you're on set for. And that in, that in itself is a skill, like having this mental checklist of all the things that you need to be doing throughout a day and not being able to plan that, but still be able to get all those things done. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the film you're on and how organised every other department is. So say we're, you're a cog in a much larger machine, and so you kind of need all the kind of cogs to be working together to make it efficient, which there's so many things that change on film sets, and there's so many things that suddenly come up, or something's not going to happen, or an actor doesn't want to do something, or all these kind of things that suddenly change your day. So it's just it's being flexible and just getting ready to be prepared to do anything and everything. Sounds kind of fantastic. It's, it's not bad. It's not bad. You're not going to complain. No, it's, it's not really not. Is this done all in London or like it's, it sort of sounds like something you'd need to move around a bit for? No, so the company I work for, we're based in London, Atlanta, Georgia in America and Vancouver up in Canada, but we're a worldwide company. Depending where films need to go, we will go. It depends if, it, if some films just want a couple of VFX shots, like they're not filming there, but they just want you to, they want to have some photos and some buildings and stuff in a foreign city. They all send just the VFX team out there to capture it. If they're filming out there, we'll be part of the crew that will go out to these places and spend time with the crew and capture around the world. So I was sent to Hawaii for two weeks on a, on a show in January. So leaving London in January to go to Hawaii for two, three weeks was a, was a real struggle. <laughs> Yeah, poor you. Yeah, poor me. Just, just for any Southern Hemisphere people who are a bit sort of Southern Hemisphere focused, uh, January is winter in London. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been sent to Australia for your winter as well for a show. Your winter's still nice than our than our winter, so I wasn't complaining too much. Nice opportunity to be in Sydney for for a show, and then yeah, we've we've had people being sent to like South Africa for a month. Uh, a colleague of mine was in Japan for two months. You know, like so, you do get you get to travel the world. You get nice accommodation sometimes, and and then the power of some of these film companies means that they can get you access to places that aren't normally open to the public. You know, I've had people go to the Vatican and work in the Vatican, you know, where you're not normally allowed to take any cameras. For a show I did, we got to shut down the Rialto Bridge in Venice at sunset on Saturday night just for our own work. And it's kind of, I mean, it's selfish for the film companies to be able to do that, but it gives you opportunity to go to these places and experience them. So it's quite nice. For me, it's nice. I understand if you've gone down holiday and some film company shut down the one attraction that you wanted to see, it's not so nice, and I appreciate that. But from a selfish point of view, it's pretty awesome at times. So there's been some good, some good things that you kind of you get those kind of experiences. So I mean, one to kind of stick out is I got two, three nights around the British Museum, just myself and a tour guide to go and scan some stuff. So it was completely empty. I got you know private tour of that. That's fantastic. That's pretty special. I'm a bit of a geek, so kind of being around that much history and just being paid to be to have a private tour essentially of the museum while you got to scan stuff was a pretty good one. And like it's it's little things like that which are just above the kind of pay that you get and kind of sounds like one of the big bonuses of this particular job is that you get to see kind of the behind the scenes and be part of the behind of the scenes, not just of films being created, but also places that a lot of people just don't have access to. Yeah, I mean, the places that other people, like people aren't allowed to be is, is really, it's a, like a really special, really privileged part. The behind the scenes can work in two ways that some colleagues have found watching films hard after starting to work in the industry because you know it takes some of the magic away of it sometimes. We worked on Game of Thrones, for example. A few of my colleagues knew all the spoilers. And then so, you know, they, they said they didn't enjoy any of the last few seasons because they knew what was going to happen. So it's kind of, it can take some of the fun out of it. If you're a big fan of the TV show or the fran- film franchise, it, it can ruin bits of it. But then it's also great that you know some of the stuff and you can be around the behind the scenes before it comes out, before anyone else knows about it. Yeah, that's a little bit cool. Yeah, it's just, you know, you've got, you've got kind of careful who you speak to and what you say about spoilers or breaking any, any NDAs. Sometimes you just want to tell people things and it's just like, oh, can't tell you for like six months. Definitely, there's definitely some perks to it, but you do long hours for those perks as well. So I need to stress that it's not, in the film industry, it's, you will be doing long hours. It's not that kind of nine to five, close shop at five past five and go home. It's might not have left set for... 18 hours one day there's perks and there's cons to every job I suppose yeah and it's just I think for most jobs it's sort of finding the right combination of perks and cons for you that makes it sustainable and hopefully enjoyable yeah it's definitely and it's I mean one of the perks I have and especially within the VFX department is the changing technology is quite cool so even just with LiDAR which is what I use predominantly or the photogrammetry that we use as the company which like 180 cameras in like a matrix rig and do photogrammetry of people to make 3D models of all the actors. And then you have other colleagues who use mocap and they're all doing different kind of changes in how mocap works and the technology changes there. So I always just find quite interesting where technology is going and what it allows you now to do within the industry is just a fascinating thing for me. There's a huge amount of technology in your job. There's a lot of kind of dealing with moving parts, getting a lot of things done in a very kind of dynamic environment. 
what are some of the core skills that you need to be able to do your job well in that environment? I think enthusiasm is probably the most one. Like you need to kind of be able to speak to a whole range of different people from from lighting departments to VFX people who don't know exactly what you do or how much time you'll need. You then sometimes have actors coming up to you, like some, you can have like an A-list actor, I was scanning a set and an A-list actor comes up to me and goes, what are you doing? And it's a bit of this kind of starstruck, you're really famous, but I need to explain in, in simple terms what I'm doing. And you need to be kind of able to just chat to everyone, get everyone on your side to give you the time to do your job well. So whether it be explaining it or you know compromising a bit and working with all these other moving parts, the basics of it you can learn fairly easily. It's it's more enthusiasm enthusiasm getting on with everyone is the main the main bit. If people like you, they'll give you more time to complete your work, depending on if they're if they can, but most people will try and help you. For depending on the film, if it's a big visual effects heavy film, they will give you more time because they know that the more time you have to capture stuff or the better you can do the better the outcome will be. No one goes into films wanting to make a bad film. I appreciate I have worked on some that have terrible reviews and are not great, but no one sets out to do that. Most people, if you if you get on with them and nice them, they will try and give you as much time to complete your work as they can. So as I'd say the enthusiasm, like being kind of a people person, is good for my particular role. There are obviously other areas in the VFX that you don't need to interact with as many people or... You don't need you need a different set of skills depending on which area of VFX you are. But the one I know about is kind of chatting to most people, explaining what you do, and just being enthusiastic and happy to be around. Because if you're going to be with people for months on end, you kind of want to get on with them. Don't have any kind of down, depressed people because it just makes your whole shoot more of a trying experience. So in in short, enthusiasm and just kind of being a bit of a people person, I think, is the best advice for lidar technicians. Which Honestly, based on the title, you would not assume that being personable and also it sort of sounds like you need to advocate for not just your job and your access, but also the importance of the work that you're doing and kind of educating people on the role that you're playing within the machine. Nowadays, film crews are much more aware of visual effects now. It's, it's still this up and coming new, new boy on the scene, essentially. You've always had camera, you've always had sound, you've always had the actors, but VFX is kind of a new beast and it's because it's still evolving, technology still changing, not everyone is sure of what each thing does or how it works. People are getting much better at knowing and understanding, which is really good because it means that they kind of they will plan time for you to come in or they will do what they can to help you. With my job as well, you need to know your technology and you need to know a lot of the kind of computing and all that stuff is in the computer, in the camera itself. So you don't need to know the algorithms and all that stuff, but you need to know your your resolutions, your type of light, how light will interact with various materials that are around set. So what I mean by that is if you're scanning um, something that's just concrete, you're going to get quite a good response back because it will just reflect laser beam quickly. However, if you're scanning a black shiny car, due to the nature of the car, and you know the color black. The black will absorb like most of the light that you fire at it, and because it's shiny, it will reflect the other half. So you will not get a good return signal. So you will have no data in that area. And it's knowing how your machine will interact with different materials and the different resolutions you need to be able to accurately map details or special bits of a set or environment, and then how long that will take 
And within that, you then need to know how how many setups you need to do to be able to capture the set fully at the desired resolution. As I say, I think though that kind of thing comes with more experience and more everyone makes the mistakes the first time they scan something and they get very little data back because they didn't realize that it was marble, which is porous and will bounce a laser beam around. But it's one of those things you start developing with more experience. And so by the time you're probably on your own on a film set, normally you'll have that knowledge and you'll just be able to concentrate on how many setups I need to do to be able to capture the whole 3D environment of the set, how long that will take due to the settings that I need to apply on the machine. It's similar to like camera. So you have all the settings that you can change. You can change your aperture, photographic camera. You have your aperture, your um, your shutter speed, your ISO. We don't have that on the LiDAR machine. We have the kind of resolution, which is point spacing. The distance between two points 10 meters away from the scanner. And it, each of these things take a longer time. So it's kind of weighing up the different options you have to best capture the set you need to in the time you have. So that will all come with experience. So then if you have the experience and you're then the people person and can kind of talk and explain what you need and why, that's probably the key point on set, I, I would think. Fantastic. And adding to that is also the ability to stick to your NDAs, which are non-disclosure agreements. They're basically a document you sign promising that you won't, I guess, share any spoilers. I mean, on set, everyone has signed the same NDA. So on set, you can explain, I need that because that's key or this is going to happen. The NDA is essentially that as soon as you come out of the studio, you cannot discuss the film you're working on or the, the show you're working on. You can't say who's in it, you can't say what's going to happen, you can't tell any storylines or plot. It's all very secretive because we're living in a day that spoilers are so ready on the internet and, you know, it kind of takes away the pleasure of viewing something for the first time that you're going to sit down, you're going to experience this without knowing what happens at the end of it. So it's just a way of trying to keep that process as quiet as possible for as long as possible as well. You know, if there's big shocks, you don't want everyone to know there's a shock in your film six months before they can see the film because it takes away the fun of it. So, yeah, it's essentially we can't discuss ongoing projects as soon as we leave the studio. Which I feel like would be its own challenge, especially if you've seen something really, really cool and you're like, I just want to share this. (laughs) No, 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 I'm, I'm learning to appreciate keeping the magic alive and enjoying those genuine moments of surprise in films no spoilers no spoilers it's more it's more fun that way if you don't know and i know that people don't often want things spoiled for them they kind of want to find it in their own time if they really care about something so it's intellectual property at that point as well so i mean that just that so the nda just goes with the territory if you work in film you'll sign ndas and they're they're very strict and it's not worth it's not worth screwing around with them or risking, risking never, never having a job again because of something you told one person. And I love the idea that even though there's so many people working on these projects and it'd be so easy for there to be leaks and mistakes that for some of these really big projects, we're still managing to keep those secrets. And in a day where you can share information so quickly, it's kind of heartening to know that all these people are working together to keep this secret just so that people a couple of months or a year or two down the track can sit in a cinema and go. <gasps> it's also a bit of self-preservation because 
if you're ever caught breaking NDAs, you're never going to work in the, the industry again. The industry is smaller than you think. Like, is everyone knows knows other people in the industry? So if you're if you have the reputation of not keeping to NDAs, you probably won't be employed. There's not other people who will want your job. They don't need to employ you. It's, it sounds like it sounds horrible. It's just the same as any company. Like every company has NDAs and you know things they don't want their competitors knowing. It's not worth risking your livelihood to tell someone a bit of gossip that may not even make it to the end of the final edit anyway. That's so true. Of course, everything filmed doesn't go through. No, we film we film a lot of stuff that never makes it to the screen. Sorry, I mean some of that stuff is a shame it never made it, and some of it you understand why. And I mean these are all for other the editors and director and stuff. It's you know some things when you're filming will never make it to see to screen, and some things you're like, oh, I don't think it will, or it shouldn't, and then you see it later on screen, you're like, oh, okay, they went with it. <laughs> You don't want a backseat director. I just the thing is, I still. I mean, the way I deal with it is obviously I see a lot of the things being filmed, but it's still nice when it's all put together and it's all got the soundtrack and it's got the kind of stunts and VFX all put in and everything like that. It just it makes it a more complete spectacle. So there's no point in assuming what you're seeing is going to be the final product because they're obviously going to jazz it up a bit and make it visually better. So you can still have the enjoyment of that and seeing what bits went into the cut, final cut. How have you ended up in this job? Like, it doesn't sound like something you can just kind of walk out of uni straight into. What's been your path to getting into a role where you get to be on set at some pretty cool films? I, I luckily fell into it. I did geography as an undergrad, which is the broad is a really broad degree. And I left uni during just at the Depression in 2009. So I was kind of like, no, there was no job. So I went back to uni and studied something called remote sensing. So remote sensing is like satellite imagery, aerial photography, photogrammetry. And as part of that, they had a LIDAR course. And so that's when I first started getting into LIDAR, started learning about it. And always kind of thought it'd be something I'd quite like to know more about or even do as a job. I then went into climate change science for a few years, doing some like thermal mapping stuff using the remote sensing. And then I was like abroad when I did that one. I came back to, to the UK and was just like, I'm going to give LIDAR scanning a go so I was applying to lots of survey companies to just do normal surveying and lidar scanning of buildings and basically be a survey and I I sent off a speculative application to a company that worked in the film industry and just said I was looking for work experience because I'd been unemployed for a few months at this point and it was a bit you know just like oh let's give it a whirl see what happens and it just turned out that the manager of that company had done the exact same remote sensing course that I had. He knew the skills I had. He could just train me to be film competent at it. So he he took a chance on me. Yeah, I've just I've been too stubborn to leave since then. So develop more experience and kind of work your way up from being the new guy to being the lead lidar tech on some some big films. It's just I have fallen into it. I know I'm exceptionally lucky because it often takes someone to just take a chance on you to be able to do these these jobs but there are ways of doing it you could if you wanted to be in film you could go to film school where a lot of people people do and figure out which area if you wanted to be in lighting or if you wanted to be VFX or anything like that that's film school is one way or you can start with no no degree whatsoever and start as a runner in the production side and again if you're personal and chat to people you'll then be able to try and get an opportunity to start in a different department to kind of work your way up the department that way it's just kind of being 
you know, just try, trying and just asking and see if there's any way you can start. It could be, you know, just a few days a week just to get your feet under the table, see if you like it. There's no direct path into it. So, I mean, my company, I think, although we work in film, I think only about four of us were actually studied film. We have people who, who were surveyors. We had 3D artists. We had, I think, some guy was a car designer. And it's just applying for a job and someone taking a chance on you because most of them were kind of personable and you can teach people skills if they've got some basics. So there's no direct path into the film industry, especially not in the LiDAR VFX. I think you, you could approach some company. There's companies around the world that do LiDAR for visual effects. So you can always approach them for work experience or just applying to companies that do it or get onto this show in a different role and then speak to people and make contacts. It's networking as always. And sadly, it all comes down to who do you know once again? For a lot of the roles, yes, it's who you know. But then there are also a lot of roles that most people want to take a chance on people. If you're enthusiastic and show willing, most people want to like help someone start. The other option is you could approach one of the big visual effects houses, your double negatives, your motion picture company, your frame stores, because they do a lot of in-house stuff as well. I have, a colleague, I have colleagues who applied there as a just a junior and then they got trained in LIDAR in one of the big houses and they so you can work in work your way up in one of the bigger houses if need be it's another way of doing it I don't want to say it's just who you know there are many options to get in I fell in so I had a, a weird way in anyway was it a job that you even a year before you got it were you aware that this job existed I was aware of it because I, when my time in climate change science was coming to an end, I was looking for alternatives. I kind of, I remembered it really enjoying LIDAR at university. So I approached a company in Sydney and I went and met them and just, you know, they didn't have a job, but I still went and met them to have a chat and they were talking to me about how they use LIDAR and scanning on films. So I knew it was an option. It just sounded something that, yeah, it sounds quite fun. Like you can hang on film sets, you can just, you know, you, you get to work in these massive, massive productions and, you know, you, you've created something that millions of people will hopefully enjoy or tear apart, depending how bad the film is. You know, I knew it existed and I was lucky enough just to apply to one of the companies that did the on-set scanning for films in the UK and it just, it was just right time, right place. Yeah, I knew it existed. I didn't know the whole scope of it until I start, until like the first day on set when it's like, oh, okay, now this gets a bit more real. There are, there are many jobs out there in the industry that you don't even know exist until you look into it a bit more. So film is something that people are interested in. There are many options, whether it be VFX, whether it be lighting, whether it be camera. There's, there's many different roles within each of those, those departments. And so there's possibly something for everyone. It's like a whole little family. That's such a sweet, sweet little thought. What is, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of cool things about your job. What is one of the things that helps you get up in the morning after, particularly after one of these like long 18-hour shifts, that gets you excited about still going into work every day? I've always been someone who, I don't like routine in the sense that I, like, I don't want to go to an office every day, sit in the same cubicle and do my nine to five. I like the fact that every day is going to be a bit different. Because like I say, I'm a bit, bit of a geek. So like I love I love going to a set and seeing how they've, these really phenomenal people in the construction like, part have just built a world from nothing essentially in a soundstage so it's being almost like an immersive experience on these sets that you go to and it's it's just phenomenal seeing what they've done with it so I'm always intrigued with how something looks how 
you know, how it's been made, how best to capture it. Like I quite like the kind of problem solving aspect of my job, which is how can I capture this set or environment in the best way that will give me the best data in the most efficient manner and kind of working that part out as well. So I quite enjoy that. And it's, is it, each day is different. It's normally, films are normally quite fun to work on because you kind of, you, it's a big team of, team of you most of the time. And there's a lot of people go, go around make, to make films. So it's being part of the team and knowing that, you know, even after those tough days, you know that people are still relying on you to come in the next day to do your job. But I think the thing that gets me up is the kind of the excitement of the new, what, what each day will bring, just see what it entails. It's going to be something new. It could be something different. It could be something, could be the coolest thing you've ever seen. Like some of the sets are phenomenal and it is sometimes just really good to go and like kind of be in awe of what they've done to it. I know there's a lot of secrecy in NDAs, etc. Have you got any cool stories or any cool things that have blown your mind that you can share? The most recent set that comes springs to mind for me is as a company we did a lot of scanning on 1917, the film that came out last year. It was done in as a Sam Mendes film. It's done in one shot through the trenches of World War One and across no man's land, and it follows these these two soldiers who've got a mission to get a message to the front line because it was done in a single shot they essentially built most of the set like the entire set so we turned up one day to set and they'd built 600 meters worth of trench then went out into this shell pocked kind of landscape which is like no man's land they built it so authentically that it was just this kind of like the set was just phenomenal and it's kind of like you dug in a trench in a muddy field that would have been similar to yeah, they tried to obviously make it as authentic as World War One as they could, and it just it was one of those sets that kind of was phenomenal. Seeing the sheer scale of it was mind blowing. So that's probably the most recent one that springs to mind. These are sounding like some pretty cool things, and I can imagine that if there's some young people listening to this, they might be a little bit inspired. And if you've kind of touched upon some advice on how to get into the industry but have you got any advice for maybe someone who's still studying at school and wants to get into film but probably more of this kind of like techie sciencey side of it so I mean the science science that I, I did science throughout school and then did geography at university but the best thing I did at university was a remote sensing course which is about like satellite imagery and aerial photography and 3D scanning. And it's because yeah, I, th- I originally thought I wanted to go and make maps for a living, which is probably still the backup plan. But it's it's just knowing, kind of keeping keeping an idea of what technology changes. So one of the latest things is maybe drones. So there's a lot of, lot of stuff with drones at the minute. So if you know about cameras, you know about drones, there's kind of an, a way in to the industry there. A lot of the stuff is, there's a lot of great software, which is all the algorithms and all that stuff so you don't need to know the actual equations and formula one of the best things if you want to get into the vfx industry could be to go and download some of the free softwares for modeling if that's going to be if you want to be a 3d artist you can go download um, all these kind of modeling softwares and play about with them or like learn photoshop if you want to do 2d stuff and if you get those kind of skills up it will probably help you figure out if you want to be more 3d or 2d based or if you want to be more like i am which is less creative but it's more exact measuring then like you'll know kind of the path there and you'll know best way to get there from where you're starting from but maybe just keep an eye on you know the latest technologies and because they will change and they will come in you know the latest camera might change everything or you now get lidar on drones for example so it's all those things will keep changing but if someone's still at school studying it's 
you need to have a knowledge of how your technology works. So physics may be a good good example, just how, or for me, physics has been good because it can explain how light reacts with various materials. If you find a simple way of explaining yourself, that can often go a long way into helping people give you more time to do your job, essentially. But as I said, there's no right or wrong way to get into the industry. It's just making, like, knocking on doors, sending emails and enthusiasm. If you know where you want to be in the industry, find a company that does that and ask them what what will be the best way for you to get in there. And often they'll like, come in and train. Because I know there's a lot of people on film sets who left school, didn't go to university. There's a lot of people who have master's degrees. So there's, like, within the film, you know, people who make a film, there's all sorts of levels and all sorts of... There could be something for everyone. I mean, if, if you don't want to do the technology side of it, but you want to do construction, there's... You know, they build a lot of these sets from scratch. There's a massive construction industry. Within that, you've got the kind of the riggers, you've got painters, then you've got lighting specialists, and you've got like, there's a lot of different areas within a film. So it all depends on which area they'd want to start in. I appreciate that's probably not very helpful and quite vague. But it sounds like it's good to keep your mind a bit open, experiment a bit with some of the different options or just be curious and sort of be possibly be willing to go in right at the bottom and talk to different people and learn about the different roles while you're there so you can actually get a solid idea of what that role is and then see if you can work your way up. I think that's a really good point and though that if you start at the bottom and are willing to work your way up and put the time in and do some shows like a lot of people want instant gratification which is not how how it works you might need to start at the bottom and be the lowest person for a show or two but then if you've done if you've done that then you'll step up each time like i know someone who starts off at the lowest he was like a runner for production then became an assistant with the camera department and he kind of jumped around three or four departments and now he's one of the major vfx coordinators in america but he he's worked in like four or five different departments figured out how they all worked and then found the one he enjoyed most but he made so many contacts at that point that it's easier for him to step up you may have to start at the bottom and work your way up like anything but if it's what you want to do you'll know you'll know pretty quickly yeah it sounds like the kind of industry that could be a bit polarizing so for someone who this kind of long hours and dynamic nature might not suit them. Like they'd find that out pretty fast and then they can go work their nine to five in an office somewhere else knowing that this is the right path. Even in the VFX bit, maybe you're like, I don't like the dynamic changes on set, but I still want to be in the 3D world. There's then jobs at post-production when you can do your nine to five in the office after the film is wrapped and then you're going to create the models or use the LiDAR to camera track or do set extensions so there is those potentials later down the line in different a different role within the film journey the on-set part is the bit that we're chopping and changing more than anything else if you're not keen for the long hours where everything changes set is not always going to be the best place for you it doesn't mean it's all over no it doesn't mean you can still work in the film industry but not be on set you could be processing you can be behind the scenes a bit more so there's there are options for a lot of people is there anything else before we wrap up? Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Anything we haven't touched on that you think would be a good note for our listeners? I just say if people if people want an, a career in film, there are many options out there. So it's depending on what they want to do. So just because you can't do one thing doesn't mean the the option to close to you. And finally, just to wrap up, is there anyone you would like to give a shout out to? Anyone you think is doing an awesome job? at the moment that you'd like to give a virtual high five to? Because we're kind of in a time of COVID, like we'd want to say well done to all the crews because, I mean, especially over here in London, we shut 
all production shut down in mid-March and they're all just starting now. And it's there's been like six months of no work. And most most people are like contractors. And so I'm I'm lucky that I work for a company. So I've had the opportunity to be furloughed. But a lot of these people are contractors and don't have that guarantee. So it's good that you know they're still they're still there and they're all coming back to work now and just uh, everyone's hopefully going to be on the other side and very busy from now on. So just yeah, everyone who's kind of struggled in the last few months in this industry, it's not been it's not been easy. And I think that especially bittersweet because speaking as someone who has been relying a huge amount on movies and media, particularly visual media, to get through some of these challenging months, the TV, Netflix, etc., has been so key to providing windows into other worlds and sort of escapism. I don't think that should be understated, the value that's been provided by the whole industry to everyone around the world at the moment. Yeah, people have noticed a lot in COVID that how much they rely on you know new media coming out, and it's when you can't make it. There's going to be kind of a slower release of films now, and it won't be probably as many because they've just not been able to film them. So it's you know it's a shame, and hopefully we'll get back up and running quickly. For sure, and as a consumer, I really hope you can continue to make these things that we can savor and help us through some of. The more challenging times. Yeah, a bit of escapism is always good, eh? Especially now. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's really cool to hear this window into a completely different, different kind of world. No worries. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, you're a little legend and you should check out our website at avidresearch.com.au and sign up to our amazing email newsletter. No spam, only email updates and maybe some exclusive content sometime. Follow us on social media to ask us questions or just to dob in people for interviews. 